Welcome to episode four of season 12 of the Growing Empire show. Today, we are going to talk about strategies to control your expenses on your investment property. And you are going to hear excerpts from one of our recent investor club meetups from the Empire Investment Club. So stay tuned. Welcome to Growing Empires, hosted by real estate entrepreneur and trusted investment advisor, Jennifer DeJesus. Growing Empires provides insight to building wealth through passive income-producing real estate investments for those who want to build and manage a more profitable real estate portfolio. Welcome back. You're going to hear today part two of our most recent Empire Investment Club meetup where investors like you got together to network and share stories regarding improving underperforming assets and planning for exit strategies. Today, we're going to specifically talk about how to control your expenses on your investment property, as well as planning that exit strategy. So let's get started. You know, part of making a building more profitable, it's not always just about creating more rent collection. It's also about decreasing the expenses simultaneously, right? Because I can keep increasing my rent. And if at the same time, my expenses are still increasing, I'm not actually making more money. I need to actually have my rent going up and my, my income going up, but I need to have my, my expenses going down simultaneously to really create the, the profit. And what would you do in the case of when, let's say you have it all planned out, you've got your strategy, your budget, you're increasing your rents. Should there be some sort of like buffer or allowance for a potential tenant issue where they stop paying rent or something like that? I mean, should you build that in or is that being like over like protective of the cash flow? Um, it should be budgeted in for sure. So a lot of times when people are analyzing properties, they're analyzing them with some sort of vacancy factor. We recommend 5% that's built in that just kind of put away for those, those events because you know, I'm a big believer that nobody ever sells you their best investment, right? So you have to plan for things. Things will happen. Now, the extent of what's going to happen and how, how much is going to happen all at the same time is certainly anybody's guess. But you should definitely have reserves set aside for vacancies. Uh, you definitely should have money set aside for capital improvements, general repairs and maintenance, because, you know, if we're talking like, a five unit, 10 unit, 12 unit, whatever, you know, you have one or two vacancies and likely the cash flow of the building will still be profitable. But if you have, say, a two or a three unit and sometimes even a four unit and you've got one or two units that are down, that does not mean that you're going to be profitable if you're doing any type of renovation. So you do need to kind of plan based on the size of the building and what you're anticipating, but you do need to have reserves set aside for the what ifs, you know, just some things that we've experienced that, you know, people never actually plan for, right, until they actually happen. Um, fires, floods, right? You never know when those things are going to happen, but all of a sudden you can be down a couple of units because there was some kind of extreme circumstance in your building. We've had sewer line cracks, sewer line buildups. Um, sewer line backups. We've had all kinds of things, right? And depending on the extent of them depends on whether the tenants are still occupying the property or not. But if you're shutting off, let's say, water to a building because now they've got to excavate the street <coughs> and tear up the water lines or tear up the sewer line, those people are displaced. They're out of the unit. 
And depending on the term of the lease, they may have just cause to terminate the lease immediately because they were displaced from their home. So you have to be kind of prepared for the what ifs. I don't think that you ever, in any kind of inspections or any kind of analysis, I don't think that you could ever be so diligent that you predict everything that's going to happen, but you do need to be prepared for the what ifs. And you need to have money set aside for those things. A couple of so, sessions ago, um, Simon actually talked about the amount of reserves you should have on each of your buildings as a kind of a general rule of thumb. And then after the first year or so, when things start to die down as far as expenses on the buildings, then if you have extra reserves, you could use that to invest in other buildings. But he suggested that the number be pretty high for at least the first year because of that J curve and because of the fluctuation until you get a good handle on the maintenance of the building, the tenants in the building, and you have more control, those things could vary greatly. So a really good question. Um, what other ideas do you have for increasing those underperforming assets? Making sure that you're maximizing all the utility benefits that you have in there. So if you have the opportunity to submeter or you can use ratio billing, I would suggest doing that. That's an additional uh, income that you can have. And that would then, again, to your point, reduce your expenses, which I think is really, really helpful. So let's talk about those two. What is the difference between submetering and ratio billing? Like, how do they actually work? So ratio billing is... Uh, We'll do submetering first. So submetering, <laughs> submetering is essentially on each meter or on each uh, utility. So whether it be heat or it be oil or it be gas or whatever it is, um, there's a separate meter that reads for each apartment. For ratio billing, it would be one of those readers essentially, but the bill is split based on occupancy and square footage. So it's based on a ratio of that tenant's usage essentially, and then it gets charged back to them appropriately. Okay. Pros and cons for both. So the pro for the submeter is that there's no question about it. Everything is legit. If you go to court, you could say, these are the bills that you have because they're in your name. Right. And that's what you would be due to pay. Uh, for the ratio billing, the, the expense stays in the owner's name. If they don't pay for whatever reason, the onus is still on the owner. Um, and then sometimes it gets a little bit wonky in court. The judge may say, how do we know that this ratio is correct? So on and so forth. It's very, very slim that that happens, but it could. And ratio billing, though, is not legal in all states. Correct. Ratio but billing is not legal. But it is, it is legal in Pennsylvania. So correct. you can't do ratio billing. Every, every location. That's right. Um, okay. Let's talk about the installation cost though, because for ratio billing, there's no, there's no installation. Completely it is what it free. is. You get the bill and you just <laughs> divide up the bill. That's right. Submetering though requires an installation of a submeter. Right. And it can be costly. So for instance, if you have a property that's a two unit and they both are serviced off of the same gas boiler, uh, what you would need to do is find another means of heating for one of the units. So oftentimes what we would do in that case is to maybe do electric baseboard heating in one of the units. And typically that could be, depending on the square footage, if it was like a one, that could be like five to $7,000, depending on the square footage of that unit. Uh, if you were to put in another boiler, you would need to separate the lines, put in a new boiler. The boiler would probably be about $7,000. Uh, and then you would have to adjust the input of the first one that you had in there as well. So it can be costly. Okay. So when we're talking about electric or we're talking about 
heating. We're talking about literally separating the unit. Yeah, same thing with the water. With the water, it can be costly too, especially if they're buildings that are 100 years old. Except with the submeter, right, it's only added on to the cold water side of the line. So I guess the biggest limitation is finding all those cold water lines that go up through the building. Yeah, so there is a couple other vendors that have come out with things that would allow you to put a meter specifically on each uh, usage point. So for instance, there's a company called True Submeter. And what they do is they have meters that are read and numbered so that if you had a shower, a toilet, a sink, and then the bathroom sink in one unit, they would all be linked together. They pull via Wi-Fi. Uh, that data, and then they create a bill for your tenant as well. Um, they are incredibly expensive, uh, but you do need to have Wi-Fi running in each of your properties, and that's an additional cost that you wouldn't have if it was just generally metered. And then you would have to just get those bills sent out to them as well. I see Christian has a question. Uh, in terms of the sub-metering, um, we have never actually done that. Um, but my concern has always been with that. Like, how do you prevent tenants from tampering with those devices. Obviously, you try and put them somewhere where they're uh, not easily accessible, or maybe there's even some sort of lockout mechanism with them. But I always wondered if you know, the tenant found it, would they just disconnect it? Because they, they know that you know, that's directly affecting their costs. So the submetering companies will generally reach out if they're having an error reading. So it's like yeah. a daily feed. I mean, they pull and they bill on a certain period of time, but at any one time, anybody can go in and log in and see that one of the meters is not reading correctly. So I believe that there's enough like checks and balances in place to prevent it. Um, but that's a great question. Honestly, we've never had that. Yeah. And we have submeters. We definitely have had people separate utilities, just bear the cost of separating the utilities, <laughs> which is far more expensive than submetering. But we've had people do that. And then we also do a bunch of ratio billing. Do you hear like pros and cons of like who loves what better or is it just a preference per building? I think it totally depends on the building. Okay. It really depends on the building. I've had people that really prefer to have all the utilities separated um, by each of the buildings. And then if it's not incredibly costly to do it, they think that that's the best way to move forward. Um, when you have these buildings that kind of have these intertwined layouts, it gets a little bit more complicated and then rubs would probably be the easiest way. Some people like the true submeter or those other outside organizations that do it because the tenant is then prompted with a bill. Um, and essentially it becomes free to the owner at that point because there's like an admin fee on there that gets billed back to you. So you're billing back to your tenant that admin fee as well as like your Wi-Fi. You can build that in as well. But some people aren't crazy about that because they don't want to give an additional cost to their tenant for something like that as well. So the ratio billing is then what they would choose. Okay. But in a, in the, in a cost perspective... Ratio billing doesn't cost you anything, no. but you could potentially have costs that are not transferred over to the tenant and you could potentially get hung up in court if you get a judge that just wants to follow their own set of rules. Yeah, the, the, rub, the ratio billing or rubs billing is essentially free, um, but it comes with a gamble. Submeter is the cost of the installation of the submeter. Um, but you can bill back the the fee for the submetering company to right. do the billing and you can build in hopefully your Wi-Fi connection to it. Right. But the installation cost is on the owner. Correct. And then, of course, separating the utilities is the most costly. But at that point, you're now putting the utilities in the tenant's names. Right. The episode will continue in just a moment. 
As an investor, we know it's important to stay on top of market trends and real estate opportunities that add value to your portfolio. We also know that having a trusted source of reliable information to help you stay a step ahead of other investors is critical to your success. If you're interested in having these types of resources, as well as access to me and my team, I invite you to join the Empire Investment Club, a free service that gives you an easier way to make sense of today's and tomorrow's real estate opportunities. As a member of the Empire Investment Club, you'll get access to relevant resources and investment-focused experiences such as live interactive webinars, market trend presentations, and investor socials designed to equip you with what you need to succeed. So whether you're an active investor, passive investor, a combination of both, or just starting out, the club is where you'll get what you need to build a portfolio you love. To join, just head over to jenniferdehesus.com, sign up, and we'll see you in the club where everyone's on a journey to becoming a better investor. So let's talk about the choices of these if you're selling a building now. Would you like gravitate to one over the other if in a year or two from now, I'm thinking of selling the building? Yeah, I think that it's probably cleanest, although we could do anything that we need to. It's probably cleanest if everything was separated. The bank is like, great, perfect. This is not on the onus of the owner. You'll never be responsible. Um, So probably full-on separation is the best way. However, um, I don't think that the other ones are maybe like a B and a C class on that, but I don't think that it would be a huge issue. On the cash flow statement, it'll all read the same way, regardless. And would you say that the most likely misunderstood is the ratio billing when it comes to financing and bank leverage? Yes, Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't actually recognize ratio billing. Right. Because that ratio billing can be applied or not applied. You're only as good as your your management with that ratio billing. So that would be a deterrent maybe for a a financial institution because they don't know if you're actually going to follow through with that. When the submetering, for instance, is something that would be a little bit more automatic. So when you're going to consider raising rents, changing over these leases potentially at the same time. Are we then also considering the utility responsibility at that same time? And are you picking one over the other? Are you maybe not increasing the rent in lieu of the tenants taking all the utilities, a combination of both? Sure. So I think it depends on how far below market all these tenants fall. Um, I think that when you're at market and you have a really great tenant and maybe they've already expressed that they are, you know, feeling the the crunch, it might not be the best time at that time to take over the responsibility of the utility. Um, But in the same breath, if you have a lease renewal, it may make sense to do a little bit of both. Maybe we increase them. For instance, uh, as a scenario that we had recently, we had a building that we had just taken over. The owner was looking for an $1,100 rent, um, but we had settled for a 1050. And then at that point, the tenant was taking over the water. I was literally going to just say that. So in my experience, I have always found selling the utility expense is easier. It's way easier than selling a $50 increase or a $100 increase when the reality is, is that the utility is likely way more expensive, way more expensive, but the tenants have more control over that utility. They can determine how much water they use. They determine essentially how much sewer they use. So they have the opportunity in that, in that space to be a little bit more conservative. So I think that in some instances, tenants prefer that because they know their usage. Good point. Okay. Let's talk about, 
other ways to either reduce expenses or increase revenue. Any other tidbits? I mean, we talked about ratio billing. We talked about utilities. We talked about increasing rents, lease renewals, staggering leases. Sure. Anything else regarding expenses or income on the property that maybe we're not thinking of to maximize? Yeah. If there's parking spots, make sure that you're renting those. Make sure that they're in your analysis. Uh, if it makes sense that you're advertising with the parking spot, does your rent accurately reflect how much parking would cost? Same thing with storage and laundry. Do you have the opportunity for laundry on site? Does it make sense to be coin operated? And if so, how much do you increase your laundry costs to? So if I was looking at a building and you told me you had laundry in it yep, and you were making X amount of dollars on that laundry, I would ask you to prove it. Otherwise, as a buyer, I would not be building it in my analysis. Correct. Fair? Fair. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. So let's the flip side. We're now representing a seller who is trying to maximize the profit of their building. What would be the recommendation for things like your parking spaces, your laundry, your garages, storage to maximize them? but also give something as like proof. Would you just include it in the lease? So they can be included in the lease, but I would give a numerical value to it. So for instance, um, laundry should be collected and it should be recorded monthly so that when you prove on that cash flow statement or your trailing 12, this is how much I've collected. You can see that in December, they did a ton of laundry and in November, they must have done it on the 1st and, and the 15th or whatever. Um, same thing with the parking spots. We add it for how we would do it and we would record it for our clients would be based as a rentable item. So it would be a different line item and it'd be GL'd separately. Okay, but it would identify that it's renting yeah, for... This way it's recordable. So do you ever recommend just including like, so sometimes you see leases where they include the storage, they include the parking. Would you always put a monetary value to it? Well, I would. Um, I just think for ease of, of record keeping. And I think too, it gives you more opportunity. If you do want to do a rent increase, you can tell your tenant, for instance, your storage is staying the same, your parking fee is staying the same, but market rents have gone up. So we are going to increase that portion. So at the end of the day, they're paying in the same amount of dollars. It's just that where we're allocating it to on that spreadsheet would be a different locality. Okay. What else would you be thinking of? So now if we're looking to plan for that exit strategy, what are some of the other things? We talked about increasing the revenue for holding in, decreasing the expenses. I know I'm going to sell in the next six months to a year. What am I focusing on right now? What should I be doing and not doing if, I'm, if my intention is to sell? Sure. So what you should be doing is making sure that all of your finances are allocated correctly because people are going to ask for that proof. So make sure that all your ducks are in a row there. Um, I would make sure that all of your leases are current. Um, and if they're not, just make sure that you have either a renewal built in or a plan, a succession plan for what's going to happen to those, to those leases. So for instance, if someone was leaving, what would be the next rent? So you would know how to price it. And of course you would help them with that. Mm -hmm. um, and other things that I would do is just to think about maybe some deferred maintenance that may or may not need to be done. Sometimes it makes way more sense to make sure that your CO is completed. Um, it makes sense to make sure that your deferred maintenance is taken care of so that you can get tippy top dollar. But in other cases, it makes sense, depending on what you're going to price it for, to eliminate those expenses as well and say, forget it. This is going to be on the onus of somebody else. But to bear those things in mind as you're listing. Um, it's funny you said about deferred maintenance. We just produced an article a few weeks ago. I don't know exactly when it was about curb appeal. 
Yeah, about, you know, I think one of the worst deterrents to an investment property is somebody pulling it up on Google Earth, right? Or driving up to the property. I mean, there are no shortage of people that will look at something from the outside and be like, absolutely not, right? Now, some people are inviting that that level of deferred maintenance, right, for a discounted price. But, you know, you think about that when you think about selling your own residential home, but it's it's the same. I mean, if the building looks like a complete mess from the outside, you are, you, the person is going to instinctively assume that the inside is just as much of a wreck. Yeah. I've seen properties that are like fundamentally flawed, fundamentally flawed that I'm like, I would not buy this if my world depended on it. But they're like, it's so beautiful. I'm like, oh, okay. Cool, cool. <laughs> so it's important that, you know, you make it look nice because people are, they like to see it look nice. Now, does it need to be perfect? Absolutely not. Do you want to have a hole in the ceiling? No. <laughs> Get rid of those things because right. people will think if that is an issue, what are the other issues that I'm not seeing? When in other cases, like I said, everything looks really, really good. There are no issues except for the giant one that everyone's avoiding because maybe it's not as apparent or obvious and they'd be willing to move forward with it. So let's talk about just quickly, and then I'm gonna open this up to questions because we're right at the top of the hour, but let's talk about our plan for capital improvements that we just never got to, but now we're thinking of selling. Do them or not do them, and how would you determine? I think that it would depend on what you were planning to list the property for, how quickly you needed to sell, uh, what you want to be your profit at the end, and if that repair or capital improvement makes sense to do for the price that you're willing to sell it for. Okay. Because that capital improvement will be found. So it's a matter of if you're paying for it or if you're having somebody else pay for it. But if you're paying for it, I would assume you're also assuming that you can increase the value of the property by an offset at a minimum, right? So if, if let's say a new roof is going to cost us 20,000, but we're not going to be able to increase the price $20,000, then do not don't do it. Don't do it. Right. Just price it right. And hopefully if somebody buys it. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, and would it, would it be safe to say that your general consensus is that most people still don't want a ton of deferred maintenance that even investors that are looking for value add want to know that the majority of the bigger expenses were taken care of. Yeah, yeah. It's important to have heating systems that are functioning correctly, um, roofs that don't have holes in them, foundations that don't have water pouring into them every time it drizzles. Um, Those are things that make people very nervous about purchasing in terms of an exit strategy. Thank you very much for all of that. You're welcome very much. Thank you for listening to the second part of our two-part segment from our recent investor meetup from the Empire Investment Club. I hope you got a lot out of these two episodes and have new tips and tricks for how to improve those underperforming assets and what to think about when planning your exit strategies. If you have not done so already, please make sure that you go to jenniferdehasus.com and click sign up on the Empire Investment Club. It is a free membership for you and provides a lot of great details and information for you as an investor. You will get to have access to hot properties that we pick and give you access to just as they hit market, real estate market news, economic impacts. We'll have insights and case studies from our investors all over the globe. We'll give you some passive investing tips and opportunities. You'll have live calls with me and of course our Empire Investment Club member socials. So until next time, take care. 
For more information about how Jennifer can help you plan, develop, and manage a strong real estate investment portfolio, visit growingempires.com.